Okay, so we are doing Monday of Kisisa now, as of course we see. Sunday, <laughs> if you would do the entire Chitos, uh, it would probably take about an hour. And Monday, if you do the entire Chitos, it takes about another hour. And the reason for this is because since we're dealing here with the sin of the golden calf, of which it says that no one in the tribe of Levi sinned, so our sages want to make sure that the person standing for this aliyah is a Levi. So he's innocent. <laughs> so therefore we have the bulk of the Torah portion in Sunday and Monday's portion. By the time we finish today's, we get through the entire story, which is the bulk of the Torah portion of the Parsha. And then the rest of the week is very, very, very short. So here we begin. We are in chapter 31, verse 18. And now we are suddenly like going backwards in time. Because the verse says, he gave to Moses, when he finished speaking with him on Mount Sinai, the two tablets of testimony, stone tablets inscribed by the finger of God. We're like, what? What, what, what is this? this, is, this is, what's going on here? As Rashi clarifies, sort of answering our question by saying, well, we know there's no chronology in Torah. Now, what, what's the reason why Rashi has to state that to answer our confusion? Because we're in Parshas Kisisa. Now, at the, in Parshas Mishpat, in Yisro, we had the giving of the Torah. And at the end of Mishpatim, the Parsha after Yisro, we already at that point are being told about the, 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 the details that we didn't get in Parsha Yisro before and after the giving of the Torah. That's the end of Parsha Mishpatim. And then in Truma and Tetzava, we discuss the injunction on building the tabernacle. Now, when was that injunction given? That was given after Moshe comes down the first time, and the Jews are sinning. And then he goes up a second time for 40 days and nights to beg forgiveness. And then he goes up a third time for 40 days and 40 nights to beg forgiveness. And the final day of that third set is Yom Kippur, the 10th of Tishrei. And then God says, I forgive them, like your words, the famous words, and then God says, now build for me this tabernacle, meaning... So now let's pick up, so to speak, where we left off and bring God's presence down to this world with a tabernacle. And then we have the two parshas of Truma and Tetzava, which are the commandments of building this tabernacle that were received and given over after Yom Kippur. And then we have the next two parshas after this, the Yaka and in which we're enumerating how they did it. And suddenly, in case we go all the way back. So Rashi says there's, there's, no, there's no chronology in Tyra. It's interesting. The Rebbe comments on this in, in the Sikha of 57-52, Tavshin and Beis, 1992. And the Rebbe says, of course, there's no chronology, but there's a reason for order. Tyra is not random, and it's very precise in this portion that we speak of the beauty of the first tablets, of their destruction, and subsequently of the repentance and the second tablets and the shine that Moshe's, Moses' face achieved, specifically after the second tablets, not after the first. So even though, as Rashi's saying, well, there's no order here because, yeah, we're, this is like totally nothing to do with where we think we're holding after Yom Kippur, months later, but there's a reason for this. And the reason for this is to link all of these sequential events to create a total vision of that relationship with God 
the shattering of it by sin, but the process of repentance, which actually creates an even closer relationship, an even deeper relationship, to the degree that we receive the second tablets that are more powerful than the first, and the shine of the face of Moshe, that enormous light that he did not receive after the first, he received after the second. So the verse said, so when God finished speaking to Moshe, kichaloso. The Rashi comments that kichaloso is spelled effectively, meaning there should be a vav between the lamid and the saf, which the Torah sometimes does. The Torah can write it as we call it, malay, in which like the vav will be there, or it's called chaser, lacking without it. So it's not a, a um, it's not like, wait, that's problematic, but Rashi's commenting on it because we see something here in the fact that it's written without the vav, that we have the word kala, which we wouldn't have if the vav was there, because we're saying that to bring out a certain point, that the Torah was given to him like a gift, like the bride to the groom, which showing us a degree of closeness. Moses, Moshe had to Torah as if the fusion of a, of a bride and a groom, of a husband and a wife, that was Torah and Moshe. And also they have been gifted to him, like the bride is gifted to the groom, because in a human way, in 40 days and 40 nights, you cannot absorb all of Torah. So how did Moshe? It was like the kala that was gifted to him. Another reference Rashi learns from the idea of comparing Torah to the Kala, says just as the Kala, it says in the book of Isaiah, is adorned with 24 ornaments, so too the Torah, so to speak, is adorned by having not just the five books. Originally, it says, if there had not been the sin of the golden calf and the shattering of the tablets, we would have had the five books and the book of Joshua. Yoshua, and that's it. But actually, through the process of the sin, Again, the same idea through repentance, we actually are going to achieve a closer relationship to God. So we have now 24 books of Torah, meaning with the five, we have another 19 books of Torah that we received from the written Torah. Which both of these, obviously, as we know, whenever Rashi gives us two explanations, it means that each one, in a sense, is problematic. And then we put the two together we can actually see how each one actually complements each other and each one, in a sense, resolve the other one's difficulty. Perhaps we could say here in the second one, at least, that this idea of connecting it to the 24 books really connects to the sequence of events that we're going to have now, which is the sin of the golden calf that led to those 24 books. On the first one, we don't see the same reason of like, why are we being told this now in general? In the end of Parshas Mishpatim, we're already told all these praises of the Luchos, like why is it coming back here now? But again, from the simple sense, the idea of the Kala, as, as is related to Moshe, having to do with he's speaking to Moshe, and then here's Torah as Moshe's Kala, you know, from that perspective works better, and that's why we have both. So it says when Moshe finished, that was a Kala word, Ledaber Ito. And Ledaber Ito means what was recorded in Parshas Mishpatim. Again, going back in time, because now we're in Kisisa, and we've had Truman Tetzav in between. Another understanding on Ledaber Ito is speaking with him. You think, what do you mean speaking with him? It's not speaking with him, it's speaking to him. 
So Moshe's not responding, but actually that's what Rashi says happened, that Moshe was taught by Hashem, and they would go back and forth, like the two of them together, speaking together on this law, which is, of course, an amazing thing to imagine that God is your study partner, but that's what the word's saying. It doesn't say spoke to him, it says speak with him. So God and Moses, Moshe, together are speaking over these laws of Torah. And the last Rashi in this verse, again, similar to Kechaloso, in Luchos, it's written without the Vav, as if to say Luchas, which would mean the singular tablet instead of tablets. Why does it say it as one tablet instead of two? So Rashi says to tell us that both of them are equal of which there are many different commentaries on Rosh explaining what is the equality here, um, identical size or, or spiritual value, or you know, one side was between man and God and one side was between man and man, and the equality, both of those are equal in, in, in terms of significance and weight in our relationship with God. There are many levels, of course, on how the two of them are equal. So here we have this verse, so to speak, very random, definitely seemingly should have been in Parshas Mishpatim, at the end of Parshas Mishpatim, but it's here, and, and as the Rebbe points out, not only do we have here this verse sort of preliminary to the story of the sin, but also in this verse we're describing how special the tablets were, written by the finger of God, which again is showing us the height of what we had that can get destroyed by the sin, but then through our repentance actually coming to something even greater. So now we begin chapter 32 and the sin of the golden calf. So chapter 32, verse 1. The people saw that Moses delayed in descending the mountain. And the people gathered around Aaron and said to him, Rise up, make for us gods who will go before us. For this Moses, the man who brought us up from the land of Egypt, we did not know what became of him. So obviously there's a lot, a lot, a lot going on here. And Rashi, of course, is only telling us one level of understanding. And there's classical commentators, there's Hasidus, there's so much happening here. A preliminary statement I'm going to make, which Rashi says far later, but I don't know exactly where we'll get in our few minutes together today, is that, putting this in perspective, 3,000 people sinned. There were approximately 3 million Jews at that time, and 3,000 people truly sinned. But everybody was held culpable, because if someone is sinning like this and you don't prevent him, it also means you're part of the sin. So on one hand, putting this in perspective, every Jew was responsible. Because the fact that this could happen shows that the entirety of the Jewish people was not standing strong enough against it, and it would not have been able to happen. But at the same time, it was a very small amount of people who, of course, were completely punished for their act. But yet, we all bear accountability, and we're told for every punishment we will ever get in the future, anytime we ever do anything wrong, we're getting a little bit for the sin of the golden calf as well. So what's going on? It says that Moses was, was late. That's what Targum says. This word boshesh means, that he was late. And what does it mean he was late? This is, of course, it's critical to understanding what happened here. That when Moses went up to the mountain, he said to them, at the end of 40 days, I'm coming back. Within six hours of the day. So they were thinking, okay, we started counting 40 days. That was the first day, second day, third day. And they made a critical error because when Moses said 40 days, he meant 40 full days, 40 real days. Now, what's a day in Jewish law? Well, a day in Jewish law starts at night, like we 
know Sabbath starts Friday night. So the day that Moses came up wasn't part of the 40 because it was a day. We already missed the night. So that wasn't the day. But they didn't realize that in the counter that day. Obviously, this was a very deliberate divine setup for them to make this mistake, for them to come to this very critical test in belief in God and belief in Moses, which many passed and some failed. So the ones, so everybody was counting, everyone made the same mistake in counting. So everyone was counting from that first day, meaning they were one day off because that first day didn't count because the night wasn't worth it. So when they come to what they think is the 40th day, um, which was the 16th of Tammuz, and they're like, okay, it's the 40th day. This is so exciting. Moses coming back down, and he's bringing us God's Torah, and we're all excited. Now, again, they also, and so they say he's coming within the six hours. And he's not there. And then it says the Satan, the force of evil, came and brought tremendous darkness and gloom to the world, as if to imply that something horrible happened to Moses. And that's why the world looks like it's all in mourning. And and the force, the Satan, force of evil, is saying Moses died. Look, he said he's coming within six hours. It's not six. It's six hours, and he hasn't come yet. And we get this idea of six hours, boshish, we said means late. But it's a really unusual word for late. So another level of meaning Rashi's imply without saying it so clearly is boshish. Six hours have come because Moses says he's coming in the six hours. I'm going to come within those first six hours. So ah, the six hours have come, boshish, the six hours have come, and Moses isn't here. So, um... We think he's gone forever. Now, Rashi points out it's not because of the six-hour issue, because if that was the issue that, okay, Moses said six hours, and because the Satan made the world so dark and gloomy, they got confused, and it really wasn't six hours yet, but they thought it was six hours, and that's how they sinned with the golden calf. That's not true, because, of course, reading on the storyline, which we're not going to have time to read, but if you continue reading the chapter, you'll find that Moses doesn't come until the next day the 17th of Tammuz, which was truly 40 days, 40 complete days, counting from when he left. So the issue wasn't that he told them six hours and he actually came in the afternoon, or he told them six hours and they thought it was the afternoon, but it wasn't yet the afternoon. No, neither was true. The point was they were one day off in the count. But when they, we use the word boshesh specifically instead of saying a more common word for late, it's because not only were they off by the day, but they also thought, okay, it's six hours, where is he already? And then we see the darkness and then as, Rosh is going to tell us we see a coffin in, in heaven. Well, we know he's gone. It says, so they said to Aaron, now again, when, when, if you look at the end of Parshish Mishpatim, when Moshe went up to Shemayim, when he went up to heaven for 40 days and 40 nights, Moses was actually in heaven three sets of 40 days and 40 nights, as I mentioned earlier. So he knew he was going to be gone for 40 days and 40 nights, so he told them to come back 40 days. He appointed two people to be in charge of the Jews, his brother, Aaron, and his nephew, Hor. Now, when they started to sin, Hor protested. Hor was Moses' nephew. He was the son of his sister, Miriam. And the people murdered Hor. Then they turned to Aaron. And we see Aaron, as Rush is going to tell us, thought to himself, what's going to happen here? I could protest. I could be a martyr for God, no problem. What do I care? But I do care, because if they murdered Hor, and they're going to murder me, God's never going to forgive them. So this was an enormous, monumental sacrifice on Aaron's part. Because, you know, it's easier to just, you know, 
do the right thing and be the sacrifice and get killed for God's name. But he realized how utterly destructive it would be for the Jewish people. Instead, he tried to play along, and he tried to delay, because he also thought, okay, this is the 40th day. Again, the divine plot, everyone made the same mistake. And he was like, okay, whatever, maybe, you know, what the sut and the force of evil is doing is, we think that six hours, we think the six hours have passed, it's not the six hours yet. All right, I'm going to delay, 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 I'm going to delay. But, you know, as God worked it out, of course, it was a whole day later, and they got it very early, and they managed to sin grievously before Moses came down. So they said to Aaron, so this is the word. Now again, the people that are starting this is really not the Jewish people. And this goes back to Moses, that when he, when they were leaving Egypt, there was a group of, so we call it the mixed multitude, Egyptians and other such foreigners that like wanted to jump on the winning bandwagon and said, okay, we want to be Jewish too, we want to be Jewish too. And Moses was like, oh, this is great, this is beautiful, people want to serve God. And without even consulting God, because it was obviously so obvious, don't we want the world to connect to God? He took them along with him. And as we see in the desert, they were often a source of enormous problems for the Jewish people. So here they were the first ones to revert back to the idolatry that they really hadn't completely lost. So they said to, to, to Aaron, make for us gods who will go before us. For this Moses, the man who brought us up from the land of Egypt, we don't know what became of him. So Rashi comments will go before us, the word there is implore, I shall yell who, they will go before us, because, Rashi says, they wanted many gods. In other words, they should have said, he will go before us, as Moses is singular, but it's plural because they were reverting back to, to the paganism, to that temptation for idolatry, which, of course, we can't really even fathom because the Jews so suffered under the desire for idolatry that the sages, the famous men of the Great Council, Antigonus Hagadayla, in the time of the, of the what we call loosely the Babylonian exile, they prayed to God to take away this temptation from us. And God did. So when we read about it, we're like, wow, well, they were tempted, bowing, yeah, it sounds really cool. We don't see how it's so tempting and how so cool and what was the infatuation with idolatry, but it was a very, very intense pull. Maybe we can relate to understanding the words of the Alter Rebbe who says that, listen, everything's balanced. So if there was a desire for idolatry, God can't just remove it. He, he put it on something else. And he said it used to be that people worshipped these man-made deities. This was idols. And after the sages prayed, that desire got taken away, but instead it got shifted for a different type of idol, the idol of money. So maybe we can look at our world and understand the irrational pursuit of money we can understand the, this whole idolatry had on them. So they were like, again, especially this mixed multitude, who weren't really sincere converts, they just were falling right back into paganism, and this was a great excuse to have idols. As they emphasized, Kizem Moshe Ha'ish, for this Moses the man, says that Satan showed them an image of Moses. Obviously it wasn't Moses. Moses at this point is comfortably learning with God, totally oblivious to what's going on. But he showed them as if this, 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 uh, as if there's a, as if this man Moses, because men are mortal and men can die, as if he's being carried, you know, as if in a coffin, in heaven. So Moses is a man, and therefore he can die. We need a leader, but we can't just get another man to replace us. Like, what? Why did the Jews say go make for us an idol? Why didn't they say, oh, okay, you know what? Moses appointed Aaron and Hor 
And now that Moses is gone and doesn't look like he's coming back, okay, Aaron, you lead us. Who are you lead us? But they're saying, no, 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 this is the problem. Moses is a man. He's mortal. And look, mortal is very frail. He's gone. So we don't need that. We need, we need gods. We need someone we can rely on. That Moses, the one who brought us up from the land of Egypt, this is the last Russian in this verse, says he, he was the one that, that was showing us the way. So now we need these gods that are going to direct us. We're in a desert. We're supposed to get to Israel. We can't just, like, walk on our own. We need some type of guide. So we want, we want a guidance. And what Moses could do for us, the only one that could place that is some type of deity, some type of God. Now, of course, this is how Rashi is explaining it. There's many, many, many levels of understanding within Rashi, and there's a very strong place to understand these words. It's not literally looking for a God. Meaning, I mean, these are the people that saw the ten plagues. These are the people that experienced the splitting of the sea. These are the people that 40-some days before saw God revealed on Mount Sinai. So it's a little hard to say. And then they just slip back into worshiping the sun or worshiping, a, you know, a piece of gold. But that they were looking at this concept of a God, not as a literal idol in lieu of God, but rather as a means of connection to God. Meaning, just as we have a human Moses, who is God's emissary in this world and telling us God's will. So they were like, okay, well, listen, we don't want another human because humans come and humans go. So we want some physical thing that can be that connection to God, like that was the original idea of idolatry. The first generation that served idols, it's called the generation of Enosh, the first time they served idols. I mean, this, this, this is very close to creation. They obviously knew there's God and there's only God and he's a creator. And they said, like, what? We're so small. He's so big. You think he's so busy that he's interested in listening to us small people? We, we need something bigger than us to communicate, to be the intermediary. So let's look at the sun. Now, that's a big, powerful force. Let's look at the moon. And they serve God, and we're going to serve them, and that's going to be between us and God. And then a few generations later, they forgot that the sun and the moon are intermediaries, and they started worshiping them straight as gods. So similarly here, according to many of the commentators on this, it's not that they, like, dumped God at this point and said, yeah, let, let, let's, let, let's believe in gold or, or silver as, as, as a deity. But rather, we want a physical form of something like we're used to. And this physical form will be able to be that connection between us and God, telling us God's will, because humans are too frail. So, so we need something like we're used to. It's going back to our roots, but that can be a mouthpiece for God to us. So here's Aaron, and Aaron's like, again, I could just tell them, go fly a kite, and this is not God's will, and we just have to trust. And I don't know where Moses is either, but I'm not, you know, building something as, as, a, as some intermediary between us and God here. That's not what God wants, and we know that. But again, he said, if I do that, they're going to kill me, because I saw they were going to kill Pilar, who told them that. So I can't go the straight road. I have to go the circuitous road, and, and hopefully I'll be able to delay, 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 and then Moses will show up, because he also thought Moses was showing up. Maybe Moses said six hours, and he actually got a little delayed in heaven, but obviously he's showing up. So Aaron said to them, this is the second verse, remove the golden rings that are in the ears of your wives, your sons, and your daughters, and bring them to me. So Aaron was like, hmm, as Rashi explains, why is he time to go to get the, the, the jewelry in your wives and children? He said, listen, women and children are not going to be so fast to give up their jewelry. So they're going to ask their wives, their wives will say no, they'll ask their kids, their kids will say no. Again, this is a delay tactic, because for sure Moses is coming. Any, any minute. But the men knew that that would happen, and they did not want to delay. So it says they had their own jewelry. 
And they, you know, all the Jews were very laden with gold and all these precious items because of all the wealth they took out of Egypt and far more wealth they acquired by the splitting of the sea because the Egyptians very richly decorated the horses and all the armor and wagons of war. So they collected even more wealth after the sea than after they left Egypt. So every Jew had an enormous amount of wealth. So the, the men gave their own jewelry. And then Rashi comments on the grammar, parku, and so parku is the command. There were two options. Either it would say, we translate it either as parku nizme azahav, they removed the, the golden rings, but that obviously makes no sense. And Aaron is telling them they removed the golden rings. Or what makes sense contextually, either one is grammatically correct, but the first one just makes no sense, is a command, parku, remove these golden rings. Now, Rashi has to explain it is because usually in the command form, there will be a patah under the first letter, and the second letter would have a dugage, like dabru, speak. The first letter has a patah under it, and the second letter has a dugage. But since a resh cannot take a dugage, the first letter, instead of having a patah, has a kamas, which therefore becomes parku, remove, as Rashi is explaining that this is how it works as construction when you have a race which cannot take a dugage. Third verse. The entire people unburdened themselves of the gold rings that were in their ears and brought them to Aaron. So this word is parku. They unburdened themselves. So Rashi explains this, this grammatically. That, what does it mean, unburden themselves? They were taking their earrings out of their ears, but this is like unburdening their ears of the jewelry. And then another grammatical concept here, if you look in the Hebrew, it's es nizme hazahav. Es means from. Now normally we don't think of it es as from. Normally es is a word in Hebrew that tells us that we're going to have a direct object. That's usually the function of es. I mean, it's not something we translate, but it's a grammatical tool. But Rashi brings us a, another verse, ketsesi es ha'ir, where there S is translated as from, when I depart from the city. So also here, S, because again, it's only logical. It, it, it doesn't work otherwise. So here also the S, besides this normal concept of this grammatical construction to tell us there's a direct object, also actually gains a translation meaning as well, which again, normally you don't translate S. It has no translation meaning from. So they unburden themselves from these golden rings that were in their ears. The next verse. Oh, I think we are sort of over time. And at the very beginning of this very, very profound, profound incident that has enormous implications until today. <laughs> 